when we talked about back to basics or sort of what we know works, it isn't boring because it's gratifying as a professional to be able to improve one's own um, practice, one's own instruction. And I think even more exciting is to see students do well and to make strides academically once an approach, um, something that you've received professional development on, some area of growth is being implemented well, something that's research-based. And I find that very gratifying, very exciting. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might a back-to-basics approach help EL educators ground themselves in practices that can provide the most impact for the students they serve? What are some of the pitfalls of looking for the next new thing, and how can we avoid them? How might we help bridge the gap between research and practice when vetting, implementing, and assessing educational tools and practices? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Jana Echeverria. Jana is a professor emerita at California State University, Long Beach. She started out teaching in special education, but also taught elementary, middle, and high school in general education, special education, ESL, and bilingual programs. She is a founding researcher of the PSYOP model, and her research over the years has focused on effective instruction for English learners, including those with learning disabilities. She has presented her research in the U.S. and internationally, including at Oxford University, Wits University, Harvard University, Stanford University, the University of Barcelona, and Southeast Europe University in Macedonia, where she was a Fulbright specialist. In 2016, she was honored to be inducted into the California Reading Hall of Fame. Many of our listeners will also recognize her as the co-author of Making Content Comprehensible for English Learners, the PSYOP model. You'll also learn very quickly that she is not only extremely well-versed in this work, but also highly passionate about sharing ideas that help support others in the field. Let's get started. Hello, Jana. Thanks for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. I say this uh, in, with many guests, and you're no exception. It's always kind of a long time uh, in the making, and when we finally get to sit down, it's always exciting. So the topic that we're going to chat about today, I'm really excited about, because when you and I were, were speaking about sort of what we do with this podcast, you said something that I thought was really interesting, which is, you know, back to basics isn't necessarily boring. So before we dive into some specific topics kind of along those lines, um, I want to just take a, a minute or so to give listeners an idea of what your perspective is on that, on the idea that with, with English language learners or maybe in education in general, that back to basics isn't boring. Right. Yes. As, as you mentioned, as we were talking about potential topics, um, it just dawned on me that, you know, I've been researching and publishing about the education of English learners for, gosh, over 30 years now. And, you know, although we do have research on 
really important areas about educating English learners on developing language, developing literacy, providing access to content, and so forth. And these, you know, this research is supposed to inform us about what's effective, but it seems to me like educators seem to always be looking for the next new thing. So when we talked about back to basics or sort of what we know works, it isn't boring because it's gratifying as a professional to be able to improve one's own um, practice, one's own instruction. And I think even more exciting is to see students do well and to make strides academically once an approach, um, something that you've received professional development on, some area of growth is being implemented well, something that's research-based, implemented well, and you see, you know, you really actually reap the benefits of that. And I find that very gratifying, very exciting. Yeah, I, t I completely agree with you. And I think like a lot of people see that now um, with technology, not to go into a whole other topic, but you know, so many times people bring something in because it's this shiny new object, but there's sort of, there isn't professional development on it. And it's exactly what I just described it as, which is, okay, this is a wonderful, shiny new object that we're going to try. Go ahead and try it. But, but it's not research backed. There hasn't been, you know, PD. And so we're going to apply sort of all of that to um, sort of a wide variety of topics um, dur during the next half hour or so. So let's, let's walk through some of the common topics, uh, buzzwords, and challenges that are kind of front of mind right now for most educators working with ELs. And I want to start with, with, with one um, that might be kind of at the very core of language or, or EL education, certainly, and that's developing literacy and vocabulary. So we'll start with kind of a, a general question. What, what are kind of the basics here um, and, and, and have they changed for the better? Okay, well, literacy development, as you say, it's, it's just at the core of all that we do. I mean, you can't really teach math unless students are able to read and write about math. Um, so, so literacy is at the core of education. And I'm not gonna venture into the debate about you know, best reading practices, but I can say that based on research and um, actually my own observing in over 200 classes in the past uh, couple of years with some work that I, a project I've been doing, um, I can say with certainty, not only like I say, because of my own experience, but from what the research is that English learners benefit from teacher-led instruction in those key literacy components. And I've seen um, a lot of classrooms where it's sort of an assumption that if we give students a lot of choice and if we put them in front of a book that somehow they're going to improve their reading. But it's really highly unlikely that English mm -hmm. learners are going to improve their literacy just by spending more time with books. You know, in order for kids to learn to read well, they have to be taught to read well, and then they can practice all those skills that they've learned. But I become concerned when I um, observe English learners sort of disengaging during the literacy block because they don't have adequate skills to really read for a sustained period of time without support. Right. That's one of the things that we definitely know that, ha you know, that's one of the basics is that kids need to learn those key literacy components um, to be able to read and read well. And that's interesting because, you know, as a teacher myself for uh, 17 years, I taught Spanish, um, high school Spanish. And, 
you know, th there was this shift over the time what, what I was teaching from that sort of teacher-led instruction to, you know, let's make sure that we give our students uh, agency and a wide scope to kind of do what they want. But, and, and so in, in many cases, like when, toward the end of my, my tenure in teaching, um, you know, people would come and observe my classroom and they were just really excited that my students were kind of doing things on their own or in groups. And my worry, my concern, a little different than an EL teacher as a foreign language teacher, but my concern was, have I given these students enough skills and sort of foundation so that they're, they're, they're building their skills and their, and their learning rather than kind of just going off on their own and floundering? And that's really difficult to measure. It is difficult to measure, but we, but we do know that you can measure the way that they can decode a text. Um, if they don't have those basic skills, then it's unlikely that they're going to be able to comprehend anything that they read. So I agree with you 100%. I, I am a huge proponent of student agency, of choice, of really giving students voice in class and so forth. But, but we're robbing them of that opportunity if we mm -hmm. don't provide the basic skills first and continue to build on those. Obviously, it's not something you do in kindergarten and then they've got it the rest of their schooling. It's really in those primary years. And of course, when we talk about English learners, we have students who enter school in middle school, high school, and so they even need some of those basics. Um, and so exposure alone is not going to get us where, you know, where we want our students to be. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to, to to put that and kind of sum that up. And again, these are topics that we could probably talk about. I'm sure we could talk about for hours on end. Um, so that idea of literacy and vocabulary, you know, and particularly literacy, um, being able to provide agency, but also the structure and the teacher led um, instruction um, that is needed to to get those kids to where they need to be. When we were kind of talking about that in my head, I was thinking as I was talking about all this agency, I was talking about all of the the things, whether it's curriculum or technology tools or strategies that we have available at our disposal as teachers to um, to try to help students. And that gets into the whole kind of next topic that we're going to talk about, which is quality versus quantity. So like there's just so much stuff out there. And, and oftentimes we we sort of focus on the quantity, like how do we personalize? How do we use different resources? I think that that, that can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming. It can be a blessing and a curse. I'm curious as to what your observations are here. Like, When is it important to sort of step back and examine the quality of implementation rather than looking to kind of fill our tool belts with, with the next big thing or sort of look at what the next technology is that can help us? Yeah, I guess I would say um, <clears throat> less is more. <laughs> in answer to that question yep. because I think sometimes um, schools can be looking at all of their various options and then that is overwhelming to teachers you know they bring in a new technology and a new math curriculum at you know at the same time that's in during the same year or new mm -hmm. um, process for something else while they bring in another curriculum and teachers become overwhelmed but I think individual teachers can become very overwhelmed with all of the resources available online um, through social media. I mean, I'm active on Twitter and um, in professional learning um, networks within Twitter, which are fabulous, but, but it can really become overwhelming. And that's why I say less is more. What we need to do is focus on research-based practices and learn to do that, them with fidelity. So do it really well. And just because you're doing it really well for two, three years doesn't mean that on the fourth year, let's look for something new. Yep. yep. 
you know, and learning is just, is such a process. Um, you know, I, I'm constantly learning. You talk about lifelong learners. I mean, I'm constantly learning, even within our own field. Um, when we revise our books, I'm always amazed at how much my thinking has changed from the previous revision. And, and so, you know, you could really, in, in some respects, use a, the same materials, but just delve deeper Think about doing it in a different way. How can you involve students, engage students better the next time you do it? And so that's why I say uh, less is more and try not to be too distracted by all of the many, many resources that are out there. Yeah, just un unpacking a couple things you brought up, um, you know, PLN's on Twitter and I'm also active there and, you know, learn a lot every day uh, from it. Um, but you know, it's certainly if you feel like that's sort of stuff that you need to use because others are using it, it can be very overwhelming. Um, and you have this desire to kind of use new things and do right by your students and your school and leadership. Um, but, but I think, you know, sort of shifting over to the less is more and really focusing on using things well um, is, is, is a really good point that you just um, brought up. And then on the other side, I've seen now both um, both as a teacher and now as somebody who works for um, Elevation, an educational technology company who has products, I've seen both sides of that sort of teachers being overwhelmed by uh, a wide variety of products. I know myself, you know, when, when we would be sort of pushed new things and, and, and had to learn a new student school information system while also using a new tool for, for, for teaching language, that was that was really difficult. And now I see the importance of sort of administrators and decision makers at schools really strategically thinking about implementation of products. The people who are most successful with our products are the ones who have really thought it out and who have thought about what the goal is, right, of the whole thing rather than, well, this is a new thing that's going to help us, so let's get it. Absolutely. Right. Set a goal, work toward that goal, learn it deeply, learn it well, practice it with fidelity. I love it. I couldn't have summed that up any better, so I'm going to leave it there. So let's let's move on to, um, you know, when it comes to I'm trying to sort of link all these things together. We talked about uh, literacy. We've now talked about sort of uh, quality versus quantity and sort of less is more. Those two things really are going to depend on a key element, which, which many schools hit and some schools sort of miss the mark, and that's professional development. That's sort of at the center, I think, of any successful um, school district. And we've had lots of conversations on this podcast. We actually have talked about uh, online P uh, PLNs. Emily Francis was talking about that and Carol Selvin, a few others. When it comes to sort of PD in your pocket, we've talked about partnerships with, with higher education. Um, there's a partnership with Providence Schools and Roger Williams University. We've talked about blended and competency-based approaches and so much more. Like there's so many different ways of getting PD. But what are, in our sort of back-to-basics-isn't-boring approach here, what are the basic tenets of, of PD when it comes to EL education? Has anything changed drastically besides sort of the names that we're giving to these various strategies? You know, it's funny you say that with uh, new names because I just recently was um, communicating with a colleague and she said, oh, you're presenting on X. And I said, basically the same stuff, new name. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it, that's what we do in education is we rename things so Absolutely. Often. But the research on professional development, um, yes, of course, there, there are some 
some subtle changes. But, you know, when you look back at like, say, Linda Darling Hammond or people that have really looked on teacher um, preparation for a very long time, it hasn't changed tremendously. And there are just several elements that are common. Um, There's a a recent report that came out and it aligns very well with what we've known traditionally and within our own work with the PSYOP model, some of the studies that we've done on professional development and teacher learning, um, it, it just all goes hand in glove. And one of those elements is that it's got to be a sustained effort. You know, teachers need time to to learn the information, to practice it, to implement it, to reflect on what they've done. Um, and that's what's really going facilitate, to facilitate changes um, in their practice. Um, and then, you know, another element is that teachers need to be actively engaged. Fortunately, this is one thing that we have sort of moved away from over time, and that is um, where PD almost replicates university lecture. And mm-hmm. now we know that teachers really need to be actively engaged. Um, in our own PSYOP training, we, we use PSYOP to, to teach the PSYOP. Um, and yep. so, so teachers need to be like even using their own curriculum. If it's a new math program, if they're receiving professional development in the area of math, bring their books in. When they do lesson planning, make it relevant. Make that something that they can use later on. Um, the activities and so forth uh, need to connect to students and to the classroom to make it real for teachers. Yeah, and, and bring, sort of expanding on that last point, I think that that does two main things, probably a lot more, but two that I'm thinking of right now. One, you know, when you say you sort of use PSYOP to teach PSYOP, you're, you're creating sort of empathy, right, in, in the learner, understanding what it sort of takes to learn in this particular way. And I think that's the case with any sort of strategy or any kind of curriculum that you're using. Um, and, 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 you know, the idea of sort of engaging um, with other teachers and working with other folks and using the materials that you are actually going to use with students also can sort of show you where the holes are and where the pieces are that kind of are going to need a little bit of a little bit of extra work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that collaboration that you just mentioned is another sort of element that is, um, you know, that we know is what is necessary for professional growth, professional development, professional learning. So there's got to be that space for teachers to share their ideas Um you know, and, and talk, that's when you talk about filling in those gaps. Like I may see something one way and, and then somebody else tells me about how they're going to teach a, a similar lesson or implement a certain vocabularies. We've talked about earlier, some vocabulary techniques or something. And it's like an epiphany for me. Like I didn't really see it that way. So collaboration, there's just a synergy when you get teachers together um, and create a community. It's going to positively change the culture and the instruction of their their grade level, their department, and hopefully their whole school. Yeah, and I think that's like the sort of the whole point that we're getting at here is I think that's always been the case that when teachers collaborate and work with one another, they learn from each other and they, you know, they, they shift their practice over. I guess my experience with that is that that's largely dependent on sort of the culture of the school. I've worked in a few different places. Um, and, you know, in some places it's like, don't come in my classroom. You know, I, I don't, this is, that's kind of a threat to me or I don't want to be observed because that's, a, you know, a job security or whatever the case may be. And in other schools I've worked in, you know, it was an open door policy all the time. And in those schools, the latter, um, I learned so much more. And even if it is scary as a new teacher or someone who's coming over to have people kind of coming in and out of your room, um, it's so important. We learn so much that way. 
and now with technology, it just, you know, it makes things easier. But I think it really comes down to, again, back to basics, a, a, a culture that, that sort of, um, that, that, that preaches and that lives that kind of mentality. Absolutely. And it starts with the leadership, you know, and, and, um, and it, it, yeah, you've got to change that culture. Um, and one thing that we learned through, through our work is that if you have a somewhat of a resistant culture, just find those gems, find those, you know, yeah. that handful of teachers that are willing to take the risk and have somebody observe. And then at faculty meetings, do um, uh, less, you know, demonstrate lessons or, or just even demonstrate some technique or strategy that they've been using with their English learners. And then another teacher will then say, oh, well, maybe I'll join that PLC or maybe I'll come to that meeting. And that's how you can grow it when you don't have the kind of leadership that um, is needed. And then the most risk-taking, but is sometimes the very most effective is, speaking of technology, is, is videotaping. Um, and, and when you have developed a safe network of, of uh, colleagues, then watch, you know, have them tape you. And then as a group, watch the videotape. And, you know, for the individual teacher, it's a little scary, but they always say the same thing that they, they just had no idea about some of the things that were going on in the classroom with some of their students and then their own practice. They grow so much and then have that sort of critique and suggestions and so forth. And we've seen tremendous growth when, when that is um, part of the the collaboration. Yeah. And I, I'll be another one to sort of prove that point because when I did do that and I did, I was getting national board certification and a part of that to that program's credit was, you know, you're going to record your, your lessons and you're going to reflect on them and you're going to share them with, 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 you know, a group of, of colleagues who are also um, going for the same certification. And that was, um, that was a game changer for me. The, the two, the two most effect for what it's worth, the two most effective pieces of PD for me as a teacher were that video uh, taping myself and, and analyzing, not just doing it, but actually looking at it and talking about it with people. And the second was, and it's a little bit different, I think than, although maybe it, maybe it has to do with what we're doing today in the, in the sense of empathy, it was um, shadowing a student for a day, just walking around in a student's shoes and seeing what that student sees and doing what that student does um, on, on during the day. And that created a tremendous amount of, um, of, of empathy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think we're getting into now the next topic, which is the idea of being a reflective practitioner. You know, when you are videoing yourself, uh, when you're thinking about your practice, you're sort of reflecting, um, you know, uh, and so this is something I feel like that some teachers and I, I'm not even teachers, just some people, human beings naturally do, but others need to be coached. Um, how do we make sure that it's done with fidelity um, and not just so that we're sort of checking a box? And in any way, obviously, we can relate this to sort of teachers of English language learners and how it might be different there. Um, that would be great, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Some, some people do just come by it naturally. They reflect after they've met with a friend for lunch. Did I talk too much? Did I ask enough? You know, they're just naturally reflective. And other people aren't um, as much. And they need tools. Um, yes, they need coaching, I would agree, but also um, sometimes there needs to be some kind of a structure uh, to help them to reflect. And so we've done a bit of research around this ourselves. And one thing that um, we found that using the PSYOP protocol for lesson planning and then reflection was highly effective for changing teacher practice. We actually um, have a study that showed how, um, to a statistically significant degree, teachers we're implementing features that we know are from research are 
really important for English learners, but that teachers weren't doing before. But once they had that ongoing reflection, um, and they also had coaching. So that collaboration and coaching really assist teachers to dig deeper and to contemplate their own practice. And then once they do that, they can start making those changes. So I've seen it in two different ways. One where teachers do their own self-reflection. They, they have like a little journal or something that they sort of analyze the lesson afterward, reflect on it. Um, they focus on one area of practice for improving instruction for English learners. And then they reflect, write it down. Um, and that can also be done in conjunction with a coach who comes in and offers their feedback. And then they can compare what was my impression of the lesson versus the coach's impression. And that's where you really get into really rich discussion and, mm -hmm. and much deeper understanding of you know, what it takes to really improve practice. And do you think in a situation where, just as a follow up, and I'm just curious of what your thoughts are here, in a situation where, you know, a teacher who's working with a lot of English language learners maybe needs some help in terms of being reflective and, and, and creating that kind of empathy that's needed, if they don't have necessarily sort of a qualified coach and they're doing that individual thing where they're journaling, is it, is it as powerful or perhaps more powerful to sort of find a colleague to go through that with, even if that colleague may not be sort of trained or certified in coaching or mentoring someone? Absolutely. I think collaboration is essential. Um, preferably, it's with, the, it's, a, it, it's with someone who is in a, a position like a coach who sure. has a training. But if not, yeah, I would say partner with, with another teacher, um, with a group of teachers, and then reflect and compare notes and so forth that way. Yeah, I just think anything we can do to kind of break down silos that I feel like still exist in so many in so many different schools. And like you said, if the leadership's not there to provide that kind of culture, these are kind of simple things that teachers can do on their own. Mm -hmm. So let's go to this. This next topic's a big one for me. Um, and I'll give you a little background. As I mentioned, I was a teacher for a long time and I had this really unique and great opportunity to go to the Harvard Graduate School of Education to get um, a master, second master's degree in technology, innovation, and education. And for like a full year, I didn't teach and I did this program and it was recent. So I wasn't like a young, super young person at the time. I had a lot of experience and I was just steeped in all of this research um, in this place where there were just so many resources and so many intelligent people. But I really became um, just very acutely aware of the, the gap between research and practice. Um, and so I was always the person in the program who said, yeah, I was a teacher for a long time and this just in practice, I just don't think it's going to work. Um, so I have definitely sort of seen that, you know, that, that research is supposed to inform practice and vice versa, but I feel like it's sometimes a distant relationship. How, how do you see this topic playing out or evolving or not evolving in EL education? Well, there's now there's so many more resources that we've mentioned before. There's so, there's so much information online, things that are so much more accessible. We used to have to go to the library and look things up. You Remember know, that? Out about that. And it really <laughs> wasn't that long ago. Um, and so there, there is the potential for narrowing that gap. But whether or not it's the case right now is unknown, whether, whether all of the online resources have helped or not. But we have the resources out there. And I think that one of the things that I have um, some difficulty with is that I'm not sure how many 
administrators, how many practitioners actually access the resources that are out there. For example, the Department of Education has a number of different practice guides and other reports that summarize research. So if you want to know if something's research-based, then you, know, you can look at some of these practice guides or some summaries of um, research. And they come out, you know, every few years, another organization will do, you know, research on English learners and, and what we know and what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of information online, but it isn't necessarily research-based. So sometimes I have to say I sort of cringe when I see a blog that's um, entitled something like three effective da-da-da-da for whatever. And I think, you know, for improving English learner achievement. So three effective vocabulary or grouping strategies or whatever. And I think, well, what's the evidence? And I, and I think that in some ways, social media has really blurred the lines between what's evidence-based and, you know, what's just a cool idea for teaching. Right. Well, let me give you a perfect example. There used to be, a, well, there probably still is, but um, people write talking about learning styles. Like if you're an auditory learner, if you're a visual learner. And so, I mean, there've been books written about it and you're supposed to make lesson plans that differentiate for all these different learning styles. Well, there is no research to back that up. I mean, we all learn best multimodally, right? I see right. it, I'm hearing it, I, I do it, I practice it hands-on, but that persists. And I bet now if you Googled, there would be people that are writing blogs about, you know, good strategies for your visual learners, some, you know? And so I think it's so important that we are very well aware that there are practices that are not research validated. They just don't work. <laughs> and and um, we have to make sure that there is evidence for a practice, for an approach, um, and not just have it be, like I say, a, a really neat idea that somebody somebody is promoting online. Yeah, gr really great points. I just would, would take uh, bring up two takeaways. And one is that I think that now there, you know, I think you kind of were alluding to this, but, you know, if a teacher doesn't have time to sort of read a long research paper from someone, there are a lot of resources now that sort of um, diffuse or uh, diffuse is the wrong word, but kind of um, summarize the most important takeaways of research that, that come out very frequently, um, mm -hmm. which I think, which I think is really great. I think that's a really nice part of kind of the the technology that we have and the resources that we have available um to us so that's i think that's that's um that's a positive uh, on the other side of things i feel like um many times people sort of read something at the blog that you were talking about and they try it in their class and they see their students smile and like nobody's misbehaving everybody's on task and everybody's happy and that's sort of mistaken for oh that worked do you know what i mean exactly yeah. And, and I think the learning styles is an example of that. You know, if you created a lot of really great visuals for students and then you see that the students are happy, um, you assume that it's working or that it's actually improving their achievement. But that's, you know, it just, it isn't a valid construct that, the, that every, that people have specific different learning styles. And so, um, that's why research is important. Now, of course, there are some things that are commonsensical. We don't have to study, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a mean teacher and disrespectful to your students, that has a negative right, impact. Right. On students. We don't have to do a million dollar study on that. But there are 
a lot of practices um, that do have a research base. And those are the ones, back to basics, those are the ones we should be focusing on, implementing well, implement, you know, digging deeper, learning how to do it better and better so that students benefit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's go. We have, we have a couple more to talk about here uh, and they're big ones. One is um, uh, taking an asset-based approach with English learners. We've talked a lot. I feel like this is the, this is the expression that I mentioned on every single podcast episode that we've done. We've done like 32 at this point. We talk a lot about seeing Yells and their families as assets in schools and communities, which of course is great. And I think sometimes it even feels like we're trying to convince others that this is the case. I think that's definitely true in many cases. Um, but there, are, there are countless stories of immigrant contributions to our society over the course of history and up to the, the current day. Do you think the role of teachers in this equation has changed over time in this, in this idea of taking an asset-based approach? Well, to be positive about it, yes. I think that that teachers um, have, well, early in our research, there was a lot of pushback. See, we started our SIOP research back in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. And um, teachers just wanted the ESL teacher to take responsibility for any English learner. Yep, I remember, that's, that's when I started teaching. <laughs> yeah, and as the numbers grew, it didn't matter. They still, now I want you to take seven of my kids instead of two, you know? And then, mm-hmm. and then I think there was this, whole change in perspective that there's much more widespread understanding now that English learners deserve the same opportunities as any other student. Um, And in fact, I think that uh, uh, demographically, some demographic data is very well known, and that is that the majority of uh, English learners are American born. So, um, Which still surprises many, many people. That's one of the first things we do when we onboard people at Elevation, and they're like, what? No way. (laughs) They're coming to work in the EL space. Right. No, it, it is it is kind of um, surprising, but it is a fact. And so even though it may be more challenging to teach English learners, um, for example, literacy in English and to meet grade level standards, you know, these students need it as much as, as native English speaking students. And, and I think teachers have also seen the growth of this population. They realize it's not just a very small group of kids that somebody else can handle. So in my own experience, I've seen a lot of progress in, in this area over the years because I've been in the field for a, a very long time. The other thing that I think um, goes hand in hand with this is really, um, I, well, I don't know how much it's, why, how widespread it is, but it definitely should be. And that is that parents are partners, are educational partners. Yep. Um, Families of English learners, just like all students, there's so much research about that the impact of, um, you know, parent involvement, family involvement in school is very positive. So unfortunately, a lot of educators underestimate um, English learner families' interests or abilities to help with schoolwork. And that's really um, unfortunate because there have been several studies that show that when English learner families are involved, are asked to do some things, especially if their students are um, struggling and they ask them to read at home, the families overwhelmingly are very interested and follow through. 
And so, I mean, the parents don't have to, the students can even be reading in English, but it, but they supervise that they're reading at a you know, a certain amount a day, or they ask them questions in their home language about what the students are reading, which is, you know, a really great practice for the students to, to use their biliteracy skills and so forth. So we really need to um, utilize parents and um, recognize them as a tremendous asset as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, that I didn't have sort of the, the family engagement sort of infused into the question, but I think that it's, um, it's absolutely unavoidable to, to, to get into the, the importance of family engagement there. I think you bring up a really good point, whereas teachers, perhaps because of language barriers or cultural misunderstandings, teachers may have the impression that either parents are incapable or um, unwilling to sort of work um, with, with teachers, and that's overwhelmingly not the case. I'm really glad you brought that up. Right. All right, so I saved the probably the most difficult one and <laughs> the most complicated one for last, um, and that is, you know, sort of big changes now in terms of bilingual programs versus English only. We've seen shifts over the last decade here in Massachusetts or over the last couple of years um, in California, and others are changing pol uh, policies as well. Um, but in some situations, we don't necessarily have the resources to properly implement the programs we want. So like an example might be a shortage of teachers who are qualified to teach in dual language programs. We've talked about that in the podcast before. So to kind of some, to kind of cap this off in this large sort of topic, how might a back to basics approach help us work to excel in whatever context we find ourselves in, whether it be bilingual, English only, or something else? Well, again, I keep referring to research, but we do have research about best practices for dual language, best practices for bilingual programs. I mean, there are people that have dedicated their professional careers to researching these, um, these type, this type of language delivery or, or service delivery to uh, bilingual students. And so we need to look at what is best practice I sound like I feel like I'm a broken record at this point. Look at no, but I think I think there's nothing wrong with with sort of reiterating over again the importance of research. And I think you're talking about research in different areas. So please go yeah. on. So research in dual language, research in bilingual, even research in English only. Like what are what is effective instruction, right? If if it's delivered in English, so I think it's better to have effective programs that grow more slowly. I'm speaking specifically about dual language or bilingual programs. Um, I, I'm a huge proponent of it. I, I can't even imagine that somebody wouldn't think multilingualism and um, biliteracy is um, not superior to just being monolingual. But um, so as much of a proponent as I am for it, I, I have a bit of a cautious tone just because I did live through the previous bilingual programs where um, there was such a rush to get everyone, all English learners to be in bilingual programs that the teachers weren't as qualified. And then, um, you know, it, it, we didn't have a good ending to that. And now we're in a new era, thank goodness. But as I say, I'd rather see us grow more slowly than to rush into implementing programs that might be ineffective and then require fixing, which is kind of um, what's happened uh, historically. And also, I mean, if programs aren't, aren't impl implemented well, then detractors or those people who, you know, do believe in English only, they can then say that multilingual programs, quote unquote, don't work, right? So if we do it well, 
and we use models of good practice and replicate those in other schools, take it slow, make sure that we're doing it with fidelity, then I think we're going to really, everyone will benefit. Yeah, it's a great point. I think, you know, there's a tendency when sort of policy changes to sort of rush and say, all right, great, finally, like we have what we want, let's just make it happen. But without you know, the proper implementation and the, and the sort of due diligence and taking the right steps to make it work right, then you have to retrofit, which uh, is more work. And I, you know, it's, I, I'm glad you brought up the idea about the retractors. I mean, that's a, that's a point that I didn't even think of. It just gives them sort of more um, fuel. Uh, I think they're, run, they're running out of fuel. So that's, that's kind of the only fuel they would have at this point. Exactly. Exactly. So let's do it well. Absolutely. And I think like that's, you know, basically the, the, the idea of everything we've gotten into today is, is, you know, do it well, don't do it because there's, there's sort of a, a shiny new thing out there, policies change, or we have a new strategy. But the idea here is to sort of, you know, take your time, really understand, look at the research, um, and do things in a way uh, that, that is the correct way rather than either the fast way or the kind of um, the way that's tempting you because there's something new and shiny out there. Exactly, exactly. Great. So as we wrap up, two more, two more questions. And the, the first one is one that I ask everyone in the podcast. We have a growing library of resources because of this question. And so the question is, is there a book or other resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally or both that you'd like to share with listeners? Yes, I think I told you that I, I first had to, um, you know, laugh a little bit when I read that because um, when we developed the SIOP model, you know, the book Making Content Comprehensible just sort of overtook our lives professionally and personally. So, <laughs> so it was a, it was a tailor-made question for you, Jen. It was, it was. But, you know, I have to say that even in all of our work, it, like all good work, it's, it's rooted in other people's work, those that came before us. And um, Jim Cummins was one of the, the initial people that, uh, like in the 1980s, when I met him and I read so much of his work, um, you know, and he's still out there doing a lot of good work, still publishing. So I would recommend anything uh, by Jim Cummins. In fact, he just spoke at our SIOP National Conference last summer, and it, it was just a thrill to see that he's still contributing so much to the field. And then I, uh, another book that um, was very influential for me, it's called Rousing Minds to Life. Um, I bet no one else has mentioned that book. Um, they have not. I was just thinking, I'm excited. This is a new one. I haven't heard of it either. It's been around a while. Um, Ron Gallimore um, is one of the authors, and he has been you know, an influence on me professionally. Um, and so that's, that's a really great book to, um, to look at that's sort of, as I say, it's sort of back to the roots of some of the practices that we have now that are so prevalent, um, especially with instructional conversations. Um, he and Roland Tharp really coined that term um, in the 70s. So we hear about instructional conversation and collaborative conversations. Now we think that's brought about by, uh, you know, the common core, but it's really been around for a very long time. And then the other one, I would say, um, well, Claude Goldenberg has been a big influence on me and my work, and uh, he has a number of books, and he writes a lot, so if you, anything by him, but one of the books that I really, really um, 
was very impressed by, and it's also one that you've probably not heard of. It's called Successful School Change. It reads almost like a novel. I couldn't put it down. And it, he sort of painstakingly did research in a, in a um, bilingual elementary school uh, for years. And this is really sort of um, documents all of that process and what goes into successful school change. And that's the name of the book. And so I would highly recommend that one as well. Great. Well, you gave us a few and I will link to all of those in the written version of the, um, of the show notes. And that'll be on our website at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. One more question, and I'm also going to link to this. Um, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing, the work that you've done? You've obviously been highly influential in the field. I think most folks know how to find you, but I'd love it if you could just tell us, um, you know, where we could go to find out what you're doing. Well, I think probably the best place is on um, my blog, which is just Janaicheveria one word dot com, and um, I write on all all kinds of topics related to English learners. And um, on there, I list any new publications. I try to keep that list current. I'm not always great about it, but um, so different articles that are accessible and, and uh, other books that, that uh, my colleagues and I have been wor working on. So I would say that that's the best um, place. I'm also on Twitter at Um So if anybody's interested in knowing what, what, uh, what I've been doing, those are probably the best places to find out. Perfect. Well, we'll link there as well. And with that, Jenna, it has been a pleasure. This has been, I have to say, sort of a breath of fresh air, looking at all of these different pieces here um, and taking this back to basics isn't boring uh, approach. I will, I will be perfectly honest. I was a little concerned going into this that it was going to be sort of very broad, but you did a really nice job getting into a lot of different um, different points and really kind of I think what we took out of it is is you know research is important and you got to sort of look at it and you also have to implement things the right way so thank you so much you've been very gracious with your time and we really appreciate it thank you Steve it was a pleasure Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.